Good evening. Welcome to Spin Class, politics with Michael Fragan on the Nachum Siegel Network. NachumSiegel.com, JM in the AM.org. Thank you for joining us. This is the second show. We're right in the swing of things. We are less than two weeks from Election Day, November 6th, and we're talking about politics. And, of course, there's a lot to talk about. I want to dive right into it. We have some very, very important guests on the show. I'm going to give you some different perspectives. We have Rabbi Yechiel Kalish from Agudath Israel of America, the National Director of Government Affairs, as well as Allison Hoffman-Goldman, who is a senior writer of Tablet Magazine, a keen observer of the Jewish political scene. And we are going to get both to both of them very, very shortly. One comment I want to make, I've gotten a couple emails from my appearance last week on the Nachum Siegel Show, and people wanted to know, what did I mean when I said that I'm not a big fan of the polling of the Jewish vote? So I want to very quickly break that down and tell you that when I look at the Jewish vote and I look at these exit polls, it's a very, very small sample that they get. They gather from different Jew- places where Jew- people identify themselves as Jews around the country. And they say, okay, how did you vote? And it's not a large sample. What I look at, and I look at the Jewish community out there, it's very, very concentrated. And of course, polling is very, very random. So it's two opposites. You probably have more Jews in a single apartment house in Williamsburg than you might have in many, many states. So when they want to take geographic representation of who voted how, they're not necessarily, they're weighting it, but I don't think it's enough because, as I said, you know, Brooklyn has, as a, as a county, has more Jews than any other place in the country, and that's just one piece of New York. And that demographic tends to be pretty homogeneous as far as their voting is concerned. So I'm not saying that it's entirely wrong. I'm not saying it's entirely right. But when we want to go for specific numbers, Obama got 78% of the Jewish vote, and will he get 70% this time? Will he get 65% this time? I will say this. He certainly gets a majority. He's going to get a majority of the Jewish vote. He did get a majority of the Jewish vote last time. Democrats typically will get a majority of the Jewish vote, except in certain elections in certain places. But exact numbers, I tend to discount. Hence my answer to Nahum. So we have our first guest on the line. Rabbi Yechiel Kalish is the National Director of Government Affairs at Agudath Israel of America. He had been, prior to that, the Chicago, the Midwest Director. He is a guy who not only knows the president, but he really knows the state of politics and the state of play around the nation, be it in Washington and beyond. He's seen a lot of races, and he's a keen observer of the Jewish vote. Welcome, Yechiel. Thank you so much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be on the program. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So I want to dive right into it. We're right in the heat of things. Two weeks to go, or actually less. Does the Jewish vote matter in 2012? Does the Jewish vote matter, or does the Orthodox Jewish vote matter? Well, you can answer both. The the, the beauty of this is that you can answer however you want. I I think that, yeah, the Jewish vote matters, maybe not for the numbers, maybe not for the reasons that we think the Jewish vote matters. But when you talk about... Um, Jews uh, overall being um, taking such leadership positions in so many campaigns from presidential all the way down to, to local, yeah, the Jewish vote matters a lot, and the issues um, that Jews care about matters a lot. It matters a tremendous amount. I mean, you saw the barb that uh, Mitt Romney gave to Barack Obama about him not visiting Israel. Uh, during the last debate, 
I mean, that's because the Jewish vote matters, and that's because they were sitting in Florida. Um, so, yeah, I think the Jewish vote matters. And with regards to the Orthodox Jewish vote, I'm not so sure. I think that it matters on many smaller races from Congress on down, and maybe in the state of New York, um, you could even bump that up to Senate, to U.S. Senate. Um, but it with regards to the presidential election, even though, you know, famously you and I worked together in Cleveland, uh, you know, off the record, even though we're on the record for, uh, for, for the man who became president. My life is an open book right now. <laughs> for the man who became president in 2004. But it wasn't because the Orthodox Jewish vote mattered there. It's because the state of Ohio mattered and they wanted to win every county. So, you know, it's a, it's a complicated question. So I guess the answer is yes and no, right? Well, as long as we're going to take the yes part, because that makes the conversation far more interesting. Right. So do the Jews vote? Are they voting around the country? Do the Orthodox Jews vote? How, what do you see? You've been around Cleveland, Chicago, New York, Miami. Tell us, tell us what it's like, and are people involved? Are people engaged? You know, I, I, um, yeah, so absolutely. Uh, the people vote in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, Orthodox Jews vote in St. Louis, Missouri. Over 90% of our community in St. Louis voted in the last... Uh, wow, can you repeat that number? Over 90% of Orthodox Jews in St. Louis, Missouri voted in the last election. How, Yechiel, tell me, how would you know that number? How, how do you get to that 90%? Are you, are you checking? Are you taking attendance? Oh, yeah. I mean, we are. <laughs> we are. We have, we, have, uh, we have people on the ground uh, who give us this, uh, this information. We have volunteers uh, in St. Louis. Um, Michael Shapiro is our volunteer in, uh, in St. Louis, and uh, he watches the, uh, the voter rolls, and we're able to check uh, um, who, uh, who's, uh, who's registered. It's a smaller type of community. I mean, the entire community uh, would probably uh, uh, be comparable to the uh, membership of Temple Beth Shalom in, uh, in our neighborhood. Um, but the, uh, so therefore, we're able to, to have a handle on it. Same thing is true in Cleveland. Um, Cleveland, and, you know, I think the Cleveland number, which is also over 90%, has a lot to do with many meaningful local uh, races that have taken place uh, in the Cleveland Heights and Beachwood areas. But I have to tell you, in Brooklyn, this is one of, this is one of the big shockers for me as I moved from Chicago to New York. Uh, Chicago, our voting was between the 70s and the 80s uh, in terms of percentages. I think our highest, our highest voting was uh, 2009. It was a mayoral election. Um, 2007, I mean, uh, we were in the 90 percentage uh, for the community, but uh, usually it's 70s, 80s. Here it's like in the 30s. Um, wow. Yeah, here it's in the 30s. And, here that's, it's in the, and that's amongst registered voters. That's amongst registered voters. That's, great, that's a great point you're making, Michael, because that is amongst registered voters. We don't even know how many are non-registered. So you could have more Orthodox Jews um, voting uh, in the Midwest than you have in New York, even though there are 10 times as many voters in New York than there are in the Midwest. So what are you doing as an advocacy organization, as a, the national head of government affairs, to counteract that? How do you explain to your constituency the importance of participating in the electoral process? Um, you're asking a great question. I mean, we're a rabbinic-based organization, um, grassroots. Uh, so uh, obviously we lean heavily on the, the Rabbanim to get the message out. We are having, for the first time ever, a conference call with all the Rabbanim in Brooklyn um, next week uh, so that they should speak about this uh, from the pulpit. 
Um, obviously, that's only going to get registered voters out. Uh, but uh, for we're hoping by the next mayoral election um, that uh, the work that we're doing now will translate into um, voting in the upcoming city election. We're putting a lot of a lot of into the young community, the young uh, uh, the young people out there uh, in in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg, in the Hasidische community, in the Litvish community. Um, we're seeing other groups doing similar type of work, which is extremely helpful because um, it's not a matter of uh, credit. It's a matter of cash uh, when it comes to uh, voting. So, you know, make sure that the people get out there and those who are advocating for the community either in Albany or Washington will be the beneficiaries of those advocacy efforts so the entire community benefits. Oh, so you're saying if you vote, you get cash. If you vote, you get cash. If you don't vote... See, it's that simple. <laughs> if you don't vote, you don't matter. So, they, you know... Well, explain that a little bit, because we hear that all the time, and I always ask people, explain what it means you don't matter. Because you're you're able to look at it from the other side of the glass and say, you really don't matter because you're not helpful. But what did the politicians say to you about you don't I'll matter? You, what I'll does that you, mean? I'll tell you a great story. Bradley Tusk ran... Uh, Mayor Giuliani's campaign, uh, sorry, Mayor, Mayor Bloomberg, Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg campaign in 2009. And Tusk is from Chicago. Uh, he, uh, he famously left Rod Blagojevich before um, uh, Blagojevich uh, started his uh, descent into... Uh, Department of Good Timing. Right, exactly. Uh, so Tusk is really a great guy, and he ran Bloomberg's campaign. And afterwards, I came to New York, uh, after the victory, I came to New York to meet with him, discuss with him what he was going to do. There was a question whether or not he was coming back to Chicago, and I wanted to talk to him. And, you know, the first thing he said to me uh, when I met with him is that there is no community who overstates their value like your community. And, you know, I walked into that operation, and I have to tell you, I mean, it was the most sophisticated operation that I had ever seen uh, on such a low level, you know, meaning a city, city election. This is more sophisticated than any presidential campaign I'd ever seen. And they had raw data. They had incredible amounts of data. And they said, I, they said, I promise you, whoever is running for mayor uh, four years from now is not going to care about your community. They're not going to talk about the issues to your community. They're not, unless you can prove um, that you are as valuable as you say you are, they're just not going to care about your issues. So when it comes to education, wow. those yeah, are, those powerful are, story, isn't those it? Those are some strong words. Yeah. And that's uh, that's and that's from a that's 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 from a very uh, straightforward you know good man. Uh, well, if he if he worked in Chicago, he has to be straightforward. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's get back to another Chicago politician or former Chicago politician. Yeah. Okay, Barack Obama. Yes. Okay. How do things look from your perspective? You're a Chicago guy. You have a Chicago view of the world still. He wins this election. Um, I say uh, right now he wins this election pretty handedly. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot's going to have to happen for him to lose the election. Uh, and that's, that's just my, uh, that's, how, that's, how I'm, that's how I'm reading things. That's how the guys in Chicago uh, are reading things. They're already calling Florida for, uh, for the president. And, uh, you know, Pennsylvania is not far behind. So once he has those two, it's basically over. Very interesting. Uh, how would you? What are what are the races that you're looking at? 
around the country. Tell me about different races that you are concerned about, which are the ones that matter for the community or matter to you in your work. Well, you know, the control of Congress, like someone walked into my office, uh, you know, yesterday and asked me, you know, who I'm going to be voting for, and obviously that's a personal decision. It has nothing to do with my professional, um, you know, uh, role at A Good of Israel. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to vote for, for Mitt Romney, um, but if I could, if I really felt uh, strongly about it, I, you know, I, I would vote for a Democrat to be president because I feel that Congress is going to go Republican. And um, the Congress is going to stay Republican, and the Senate could even uh, possibly, uh, if not now, but in two years from now, switch hands and uh, to back to the Republicans. And I don't think it's good for the country or good for our work when you have one-party rule um, in all three uh, branches of, uh, of government, because judiciary is definitely controlled right now by the Republicans. The uh, White House, you know, would be controlled if uh, Mitt Romney would win, and the legislative, you know, would be controlled by, uh, uh, by the Republicans. So, and I think it's good for the Jews when there's one party in White House and one party in the, in the legislature. And I do think that uh, it's important for us on many levels, vis-a-vis Eretz Yisrael and vis-a-vis education, um, that uh, a strong conservative uh, uh, majority uh, remains in, uh, in Congress. So we're looking at a whole bunch of races uh, in Illinois, in New York, um, to, uh, to, to maintain um, you know, Republican control of Congress uh, and see how that's, uh, again, those are personal, not professional uh, uh, opinions. You know about the uh, A- absolutely the opinions expressed here do not reflect the view of the management. This right. is uh, spin class with Michael Fragan. We are talking for a couple more minutes with Rabbi Yechiel Kalish from Agudath Israel of America, the national director of government affairs. And let's just talk very quickly about an agenda going forward. Right, the the elections over. Whoever wins is in the White House. Whoever is there, whoever's controlling the Congress, but the agenda pretty much stays the same. Correct. That's correct. I mean, we're, we're there. You know, number one is education, uh, you know, education funding, um, uh, particularly vouchers, tax credits, anything that can help uh, struggling families uh, afford uh, the, the, the high cost of tuition. You know, in our neighborhood, it's $12,000 a child uh, to send uh, to, the, to the better school, um, and uh, that's a lot of money. I mean, that's $12,000 after taxes for... Uh, for families, uh, average income in the United States of America is $60,000. If you're making $60,000 and living in Farakaway, you know, you don't live in a house. You may not even live in an apartment. You're probably living on the street. So, you know, that, those, are, those, are very challenging, uh, those are very challenging numbers. So we do everything we can to, uh, in working with uh, not only ourselves, but with other Baruch Hashem, very interested groups uh, like the OU um, and others to, uh, to affect change. Um, in uh, uh, in school choice, as we would say. So, well, it, it, putting it that way, how is there a disconnect between what you said and people voting? If you're telling me that people in New York are only voting at 30 percent of registered voters, let's just take that number, and there's so much at stake, you're telling me that it's literally the difference between thousands of dollars per child. Oh yeah, Where, where's we the went, disconnect? We went, what if, is it that people don't understand? I don't get it. You're you're right. I mean, maybe because I live this. But if we went from thirty percent voting to 
80, 90% voting, we'd have vouchers in New York. We'd have vouchers in New York. We'd have five to $6,000 a child voucher in New York because they would see overnight 100,000 people going to the polls that they've never seen before the politicians, and they would not know how to react. Their only reaction would be, oh, my gosh, how do I harness that voting power? And I would say that 100% of those people who are voting as an Orthodox Jew are interested in education tax credits, education vouchers, and that would be their issue. And so overnight, you'd see New York State become a voucher state. Yet it seems not to happen. It so, doesn't. People are scared about getting jury duty. It's it's, <laughs> it's it's amazing at this point that that we're still we're still worried about that. Exactly. They the, the people should know they pull jury roles now based on driver's license. It has nothing. To okay, do you with heard it here. Vote. You heard it right now. It's based on the driver's license. I heard utility bills. There's all kinds of things. They're going right. to get you anyway. They'll so you, get you. So you might as well vote. Exactly. Okay, there's there's a good catchy line. Okay, just one more one more topic I want to get to. It goes a little bit back to the elections because I I, I want to have just a little bit of this conception as how of the, of the Jewish angle on it is they're spending millions of dollars in trying to get Jews to vote Republican. Millions of dollars out there. Now, it, it's not necessarily targeted at the Orthodox community, but there's still millions and millions of dollars. And is it going to work? Is Obama going to do better or worse in the Jewish vote in 2012? He's going to do worse. He's going to have his worst numbers. The, the Democrats are going to have the worst numbers they've ever seen out of the Jewish community. And I can tell you, I mean, uh, Penny Pritzker, uh, who ran... Uh, Obama's uh, fundraising uh, 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 apparatus uh, four years ago. She was uh, in charge of finance uh, for uh, for the president when he was running for the first time. Uh, she stepped down um, a little bit over a year ago uh, from uh, any work for the campaign, or uh, I think she had a uh, an, an official post in the White House. Uh, she stepped down from working the campaign because she said uh, she has no answers for all the Jewish donors who are asking questions. So his financial numbers are down from the Jewish community. And I'm not talking about Orthodox. I'm talking about general Jewish community. His financial numbers are down from the Jewish community, and his voting numbers will be down from the Jewish community. Will those voters turn to Romney? I don't think so. Um, They're just going to stay home? They'll they'll stay home or they'll skip that line. uh, Wow, so somebody might come out and not vote for the top of the ticket. Are they going to vote for vice president? <laughs> Maybe they'll only vote for Joe Biden. That could be. They love Joe Biden. I will. That is a very good point. As crazy as it sounds, these people love Joe Biden. <laughs> love wow, him. that's that's incredible. So, what you're saying is that there is a, I get a dislike, and it seems to be personal because not at the ticket. There's a dislike out there amongst people you know as identified Obama donors or Obama supporters, sure. major Obama supporters in the past who are now, they're not necessarily moving, although some there are clearly some who are publicizing their move towards the Republicans, but uh, some of them are just going to sit it out. Just sit it out, absolutely, just like Penny Pritzker. Wow. Okay, one more, one last question, because I know we're out of time, Yeah. is uh, I saw yesterday an ad 
for a local race um, that is uh, for state senate in Brooklyn, the super Jewish seat, okay. uh, where Simcha Felder uh, put in his ad that he will consult Das Torah in decisions uh, concerning the community, which I thought is very interesting. Uh, I, I have the you know I like Simcha, I'm a fan. I, I've been uh, partnered with him in the past, and he's a great friend of Nachum and the community. Is is that something? Is that a something that we've arrived as a as a Haredi community in, in a sense, or as a super Jewish community that now uh, we're identifying publicly that we're going to consult Das Torah before making decisions? I think that's pretty awesome. I mean, he's channeling his inner, you know, Lepoliansky, you know, uh, in terms of... Well uh, said. Uh, the I, reference I, is to the former Jerusalem mayor, the first Haredi mayor of right. uh, of Jerusalem, Uri Lepoliansky. Yeah, who, uh, who was famously uh, used to go to Veliasha's hotel on, uh, for, all, uh, for all of his shilas. Um, you know, I think it would be great for Simcha to identify that Das Torah. It probably would help him. Um, and uh, But uh, no, I think that's... Uh, we're really excited to see that. I mean, for so perhaps there will be a follow-up ad identifying those. Yeah. For, for an organization that represents Das Tyra, um, and stands for Das Tyra, it's, it's great for us to see uh, a candidate uh, be willing before an election to say he's going to consult Das Tyra. Fascinating. Well, yeah. we are out of time with Rabbi Yechiel Kalish, the National Director of Government Affairs, who has shared with us some fascinating insights and comments with regard to the upcoming elections and with regard to voting. And I think the one message that you probably want to leave everybody with is, again, if you don't vote, you don't count. But I'll let you say that. Yeah, if you don't vote, you don't count. And, you know, uh, the New York community should understand that if we vote, and we vote at 90%, we will have vouchers. We will have vouchers. Money. Just say cash. I think it makes it much easier. (laughs) People understand. Gelt, whatever it is. Very good. Thank, Thank you, you, Michael. Have Thank a great you. evening. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much, Yechiel. Take care. This is Spin Class with Michael Fragan on the Nachum Siegel Network, nachumsiegel.com, jmintheam.org. And we are talking politics. And I want to thank Rabbi Kalish for joining us. And we are going to go right in and dive in with our next guest. Allison Hoffman is a senior writer for Tablet Magazine. She covers politics and other assorted areas of interest and has done several long-form stories on political personalities. I find her to be a very keen observer of the Jewish vote. And Allison, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Michael. So let's get into it. As I say to everybody, it's two weeks left. There's not much for the relaxation. Uh, How are you looking at this race and how are you looking at the Jewish vote? Well, I, you know, I think the, the campaigns aren't relaxing the rest of us. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think, you know, I think the underlying dynamics of the race um, appear to still favor the president, um, but obviously the media story is all about uh, Romney and whether he can capitalize on a few good debate per- performances and obviously a lot of energy. Earlier this week he was in Colorado with a gigantic rally out there. Um, and, you know, the real question uh, has been since the very beginning and is going to be right up to the end, the ground game. I mean, it's all about turning people out, and the Republicans know that they have a much more energized base this time around. You've got Democrats who, uh, for a number of reasons, are just less excited about actually going to the polls, and at the end of the day, that's what really matters. Um, 
So I think that's going to be the main issue uh, with the, as far as the Jewish vote goes. We know that Jews are much likelier to vote than most uh, Americans, and uh, there's been a huge focus this year on increasing turnout in uh, one particular faraway locality, Israel, um, and so that actually may make a difference. Um, there are voter registration groups abroad that say they've got people um, obviously uh, sending an absentee ballots to New York and to Florida, but also to Ohio. They've got people from Missouri. They've got people from states where they, they might actually be able to tip the scales, so we'll see. So, Allison, we just had Rabbi Yechiel Kalish on from Megudath Israel, uh, a leading Orthodox Jewish organization who... I, my first question to him was, does the Jewish vote matter in this race? And he actually said, no, he doesn't think the Orthodox Jewish vote will tip the scales here. Are you telling me that you think, uh, based on voter uh, voters who live in Israel, many of whom are Orthodox and in some of these states, sending back absentee ballots, that that potential, has the potential to uh, sway one, one or two percentage points in a close race? It really depends how close the race is. Again, it really is all about turnout and the ground game, and, you know, we've seen and we saw in 2000 how unpredictable that could be, and nobody would have imagined that Florida would have come down to a few hundred or a few thousand votes one way or the other, and it sure did. So, um, you know, the possibility is certainly there. Is it guaranteed? Would I stake my career on it and my name on it? I I wouldn't say it's a guaranteed outcome, but it is certainly a real possibility um, that in states, particularly like Florida, that that really could tip the balance in the end. Well, fortunately for you, I think you're generally writing th- about things ha- that have already happened as opposed to trying to predict the future. So I think you're safe <laughs> as far as that's concerned. But I want to ask you two, a twofold question. Number one is talk to me or talk to, talk to us, talk to the listeners about the bifurcation of the Jewish vote between Jews who lean, lean conservative and Jews who are traditionally liberal or who lean liberal or progressive, I don't know what the correct word is these days. And number two, if you can address the copious amounts of money that are being spent on trying to lure Jews from be Democrats to Republicans, uh, ads and uh, countless mailers that are going out trying to, to do this, whether it's from the Republican Jewish Coalition or others, and is does that have an effect or is it just money flushed down the toilet? Um, Well, look, I mean, at the end of the day, the single biggest predictor of how anybody, Jew or or non-Jew, will vote is is how their parents voted and how they voted in the past. And as we all know, Jews, by and large, um, across the board are um, Democrats. Now, they're not necessarily ardent Democrats. They might just be Democrats by default. And that's um, one issue. I mean, the American Jewish Committee did its um, annual survey earlier this year, and they... uh, have determined that uh, they had two surveys actually earlier this year. One showed about 20% of their Jewish respondents um, identifying themselves as Republicans, a survey that, that was uh, in the spring. In September, uh, another survey actually had that number dropping down to closer to 16%, um, which is not a surprise given that these surveys are fairly small. I mean, the truth is that nobody really truly knows uh, up to, up to a fine number, uh, what what the Jewish vote really is all about. But within these ranges, I mean, that's all that's the way that it's been. If you look back to every presidential election um, since the beginning of the last century, the last hundred years, it's the the Jewish vote has been between 
65, 75, even in some cases for Bill Clinton, 80 percent for the Democrats. So we know that at a baseline level, Jews are overwhelmingly um, have and are very likely, at least in the near future, to continue to vote um, overwhelmingly for the Democrats. And of course, but what about all that money? But what about all that money? We think in politics that money can change everything. Well, it's it's funny. Where did all that money go? Um, you know, the main question that I have, um, you have people who are investing a lot of money, and obviously the big name that everybody's focused on this year, Sheldon Adelson, the casino magnate from waiting for that name. Nevada. <laughs> hey, that's why you have me here to bring him up. Um, who spent who who spent you know tens of millions of dollars. Uh, he he's pledged in $5 million chunks to sway the Jewish vote. The Republican Jewish Committee has said that they're spending at least $6 million um, on this election to try and sway Jewish voters in Florida, in Ohio, in Nevada. Um, They're playing a little bit in Pennsylvania, not so much in Virginia, where there's also a possibility of rallying Jewish voters. But um, they've also said that not all of their money is coming from Sheldon Adelson, so he's not certainly not alone. but most of that money is focusing on, as you said, mailers, or it's focusing really on television ads, and it's not really clear that that sort of thing moves Jewish voters, particularly Jewish voters who are by and large inclined to vote Democrat. Um, you know, where the Jewish vote is turning, it, you know, the Jewish Republican vote is growing is among the Orthodox um, population, and those are people who, uh, you know, a lot of them aren't necessarily watching network TV to watch these ads in the first place. So it's an interesting strategic question, which would better be addressed to Mr. Adelson or, or to the Republican Jewish Coalition about why they've decided to focus on advertising rather than on, you know, any one of a number of other strategies on building, I don't know, local clubs and committees and, you know, Jewish Republican clubs and really sort of building a, a ground infrastructure that, in theory, could be tapped election after election. But it's, you know, in the last few cycles, we've seen them really focus on ads, which are Flashy. We had in 2010. We had these billboards up all over New York, which came from the Emergency Committee for Israel, um, but were very much focused on the congressional district in uh, in Brooklyn and Queens that Anthony Weiner uh, was vacating, and that eventually, uh, you know, was a majority Jewish district, and it went for the Republican Bob Turner. Um, and it's not clear even in that case that the ads really were made, what made the difference. You had a lot of people who were very motivated to uh, make a statement in that election. So. Uh, it's not clear that these ads and all this money is going to make a lot of difference to the Jewish vote. It is clear that it's probably making a lot of TV networks uh, better off. But, um, but the, the Jewish vote, you know, it's about making, on some level, it's about making it okay to vote uh, Republican. And I think that increasingly, particularly among um, younger Jews who are focused on Israel and where that's really their top policy priority, that's certainly something that we're starting to see. And in the Orthodox community, that's something that we see. But again, these are communities that are concentrated in New York and in Florida, um, in California. So at least in two out of the three states, you know, there's states where they really the vote is almost guaranteed to be a Democratic vote on the presidential side. Um, so again, we come back to Florida, and that's that's where this question of the Israeli vote and and all of the folks living in um, and these various retirement communities in Boca Raton really could make a difference. Very interesting. Uh, assess for me Mitt Romney as a friend of the Jews. Uh, you profiled Dan Senor, who I probably his most prominent uh, Jewish or Israel advisor, who has taken a very prominent role in the campaign. And Mitt Romney doesn't have a foreign policy background. Talk about how that's uh, shaped by uh, guys like Dan Senor and who else? Who else is there? 
in Mitt Romney's uh, brain trust? Sure. I, you know, Dan, uh, well, Mitt Romney um, doesn't have a foreign policy background, but he certainly has extensive experience doing business overseas. And um, one of his longtime business contacts or associates is, in, uh, as, as everyone knows, the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, so he has a personal um, connection to Israel and particularly to the Israeli political leadership that the president doesn't necessarily have. Um, but on a policy level, he um, he does not have the extensive experience and he is not drawing on the uh, sort of usual cadres of, of folks who have been sitting in Washington think tanks um, and who we've seen in previous administrations. Dan Sr. was a, a member of the Bush administration, but he was involved with Iraq. Um, he has sort of emerged onto the scene as, a, as an Israel analyst through the book that he wrote uh, in 2010, Startup Nation, which was an enormously successful book. And um, he is somebody who is very deeply connected to uh, senior members of Netanyahu's circle, particularly Ron Dermer. Um, and he has a, a really clear sense, I think, of the Israeli political situation. He's not um, necessarily an expert in the finer points of international diplomacy or military policy or the rest of it. Um, so there's a little bit of a, a, an interesting disconnect there. I think Romney has a very clear sense of how to cast himself and really um, say the things that people really want to hear, both in Israel and in certain circles in uh, American Jewry. Um, on the policy side, it's not totally clear he would do very much differently than this administration. Um, but he seems to be touching a nerve uh, among people who, you know, they go back to this thing that came up in 2008, which was the Kishka problem. This is not any, ever anything that President Obama did or said about Israel. It was just this idea that the the intention wasn't quite there. Um, and Romney does not have that problem. He, he is seen as an unqualified friend and enthusiast of Israel. Um, of course, for him, it also uh, is partly outreach to the evangelical Christian community. There's that um, on his radar also. Um, but he has no background in, in the area. He, there's, there's nothing really to, to, to sink into. I'll tell you. Well, look, he said in the debate, he spoke at the Herzliya conference, so he <laughs> he has that at least. He's been and seen at uh, the top of the oh, Israeli I, policy elite. But yes, no, he does not have a, a professional uh, academic background. Absolutely. And the people I, around him are not experts in Middle East policy. In the in the foreign policy debate, what struck me was the, it seemed to me that Romney, uh, that's the, the, the last debate, which was on Monday night, it seemed to me that Romney was running to the left of Obama on foreign policy. I think you can make a case for that. That's It It was just strange that he kept bringing up uh, different things of, well, we can't shoot our way out of this. And you know, certainly if you're... Republicans have always held that we don't leave any options off the table. Off the table. So what, what do you make of uh, that? Was he just going for the soccer mom vote and uh, people who don't like guns? I, I don't know. He's also saying that he wants to increase the size of the Navy, so he's not, uh, and, and he was very clear that he was not going to cut the military budget, so he's not entirely um, sending the military option off into the sunset, but he uh, was actually, I, I maybe you heard it differently, I, I heard him picking up on the, the Bush-era agenda of you know promoting democracy, which can mean all kinds of things when it really comes to policy, and he was pretty vague about what exactly that meant, but he was pretty clear that he felt that uh, enabling people he kept describing as our friends in the Middle East um, to see the light when it came to being good 
liberal Democrats, and by which I mean little L liberal um, Democrats is really the way forward, but it's not totally clear how he would do that. He certainly has not said anything about, say, promoting a, a peace settlement between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And in fact, I think he's made pretty clear that he thinks that that's not feasible given the current set, uh, set of circumstances. But he... Uh, well, nobody seems to be doing much in that matter. Well, no, that's exactly right <laughs> on any he, side. Um, he, he also brought up a couple times the Islamic uh, al-Qaeda insurgency in Mali. Uh, not once, tw- I think not even twice, po- possibly three times. I, I don't have it exactly. I, I'm not sure. What, what do you think he was getting at? Was that he kind of knows about something that nobody else knows about? To me, I, I know that this, you know, Mali, they've been impose Sharia law and they're looting graves in Timbuktu, which is obviously terrible, but is that a national security issue? Does that show a weakness on his part or it's a strength that he is focusing on things that Obama doesn't, may not care about? May not care about? You know, it's not really clear. I, I actually listened to the debate on the radio. I was on the road and so I uh, had a, I, I listened to it on the radio, which in a way I think is a, an almost better way to listen to it because you're not distracted by what people are, how, how, how the candidates look, but um, I, I felt the same way. There were a couple of instances where it was very much a rattling off of, of facts that he had clearly learned over the weekend or over the last couple of months um, about places, and he had his little misstep with uh, geographically describing Iran relative to Syria, but, um, you know, I don't know. The, the other way of looking at it is, uh, as I think he pointed out, that terrorism was not brought up at all in the debates in 2000, and he may have been flagging at the advice of his uh, strategists that he actually has a broader sense of what the full scope of, of dangers are out there. And, um, you know, it is certainly feasible in this day and age that a threat to the U.S. could come as easily from Mali or from anywhere in the Horn of Africa as it could from the places that we know and obviously think about more often as being dangerous. So I, it's, it, it's it could go either way, but he... As the president did point out, he has not actually sat in the in the control room and been the decider. So uh, it, it's well, that's a little bit of an unfair say because that's obviously impossible for anybody to have correct. done. So um, you know, that's like saying not, you can't be president because you haven't been president before. Because you haven't been president, but well, that was what the president was getting at. But all I mean is that you know what you know what Romney intended to sort of be the logical consequences of bringing up places like Mali. I you know I can't say because he didn't. Run that. Through. He didn't run out exactly what his policy um, actions would be off of it, but well, he's well, do... clearly trying to show that he's learned these things and is is really interested in them. Do we see a different posture from Romney? I, I didn't get it. Uh, a different posture towards Iran necessarily, other than the fact that he has Israel's back. I didn't see a different posture towards Syria. Uh, not necessarily a different posture towards Libya. I, I, obviously, he's, he's concerned about what. Had transpired with regard to Libya. Mm-hmm. There, well, we, and, and concerned less about what it meant for Libya than what it indicated about the administration. A- absolutely, that's uh, so. That was more of a U.S. question. But where do we see differences in Romney and on the Middle East? Uh, I, I think there's been a, a lot of talk as far as that Romney will be better for Israel, and not that necessarily right now Israel is the hotspot in the Middle East. There's certainly uh, other Syria would certainly to be be a more volatile situation right now. Um, Look, again, I think I think a lot of it boils down to tone. I think that there's a lot of sense, and particularly in the Jewish community, but even further afield, um, that there's just been something amiss with the way that this administration has 
communicated um, both domestically its policies, but also directly with these leaders overseas. And, and you know, particularly it came up in the debate when um, Romney was asked about what his response would be if, if he got a call saying that the Israelis had already launched fighter planes in the direction of Tehran and, or Natanz or wherever they were, their targets might be. And he said, well, that would never happen. Um, and I think he, it, was, it was an interesting moment because I think the question was obviously set up one way, but I think his point was it's not clear with this administration that they would definitely get the call ahead of time. Um, and he, I think, is trying to make the case that he will just start out on a different footing. Um, of course, the Israelis are about to have an election in January, which means that, in fact, we're almost repeating history because this is exactly what happened um, timing-wise in 2008 and 2009 where we had our election in the U.S. in November and then the Israelis had their election in February and it actually took them a month to make a governing coalition stick. So um, we're also in a situation where it's not clear who's going to be running the show in Israel uh, once either Obama or Romney take office um, in January, and certainly not clear in some of these other neighboring countries who who will hang on and who won't. I, I, I want to just go back to one thing you just said with regard to the failure to, to communicate or the Kishka issue. Why mm-hmm. has the this administration struggled so much with the ability to communicate with the Jewish community? This is the, the, the great mystery, uh, one of the great enduring mysteries of, of the Obama administration. Um, they seem to have overcome the question of, which was actually a legitimate uh, issue, you know, an issue that, that actually came up. I don't mean it was a legitimate question, but, but something that came up over and over again a few years ago and now seems to have gone away, which is whether the president had, in fact, ever been to Israel. Um, nobody seems to question now that he has, in fact, made two trips um, to Israel, just not as president. But he... Um, you know, he started this administration. He he came up in Chicago politics surrounded by Jews, but by Jews who were emphatically and by their own decision not involved with the organized Jewish community. They were people who um, were of varying levels of, of observance, some of them very observant. Uh, one of his very early um, mentors, uh, Abner Mikva, his daughter is a rabbi. I mean, these are not people who are uneducated as Jews or incidentally Jews. But they were not people who were part of the Jewish community, and so I think. But when but he, he had Rob Emanuel as his chief of staff. He has Jack Lew as his chief of staff. This is not a, this is not somebody who doesn't have. And yet he was not surrounding original, himself with, with. Well, there's something about that first Jews. impression. There's something about that first impression, and so and Jack Lew obviously came into the picture later. Um, he he just he never found a way to get around that. I mean, look, he's somebody who went before. Um, a meeting of, of the Reform Jewish community uh, last December, and really sort of spoke in terms of he talked about he made bar mitzvah jokes. I mean, he really he's found a way to talk about these things, and yet among people who always found reason to doubt him or his sincerity about Israel, he has not found a way to answer the doubts that they have. And maybe maybe he can't. Maybe there are doubts that are are in the ether and in the air, and and they really it really isn't anything that he can do. And I I, I think if if there were an answer that uh, the, 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 the smarter minds than mine would have found it. I mean, it really, but it is an enduring problem for him that he, despite having uh, and not just a Jewish chief of staff, but an observant uh, Jewish chief of staff, that he's still not been able to uh, knock down these, these uh, arguments and, and this conviction um, among a segment of the Jewish population that he really does not care for Israel and doesn't really care about Jewish views or, or Jewish opinions.
We're talking with Allison Hoffman here on the Nachum Siegel Network. This is Spin Class with Michael Fragan. And Allison, you wrote, I think, during the primary season about Republican Jewish donors' discomfort with Romney. Are the Republican Jewish donors, major donors, or other Jewish donors, are they all in for Romney at this point? I think so. I mean, it was really it was less discomfort and more ambivalence, um, and that was at the height of what was an extremely contested primary season, and I think um, a season where Romney particularly had to, in the end, go uh, person by person, and in most cases man to man, and really sit these people down. I mean, I think some of it was about people holding out for their own greatest advantage um, <laughs> and the biggest bang for, for their buck, literally, when it came to writing their checks. So he's a good um, closer, then. But he's a he's a good closer, and look at the end of the day, he closed the nomination, and with that came uh, came a whole host of benefits. So people who were going to be Republican, no matter what, rallied uh, to his side, and and have rallied to the side of um, of the party in the end. So clearly, he has an enormous fundraising uh, capacity and and cash in the bank. So I don't think in the end that that came out to be um, certainly not any kind of headache or, or problem for him. Interesting. Talk for a second about Eric Cantor. You did a large uh, profile piece of the majority leader of the House, the only Republican Jew in the House, although mm -hmm. there, there are others running or at least one running that I know of. Uh, you know, Eric Cantor, leader of the Republican Jewish community, titular head of uh, Republican Jews everywhere, standard bearer. He, he's been, he's actually been surprisingly quiet. I've been uh, surprised at how I was just going to get at that. He, he this season, doesn't seem yeah. to be involved in, aside from fundraising, for a lot of house races. Where is he? Well, he, he's a prolific fundraiser, um, and he, you know, that's, that's not a new role for him. That's something that he's really um, worked on and carved out for himself. Um, but where is he is, a, is an excellent question. You know, he really took... Um, it's not like Virginia isn't a swing state. Not like Virginia is in the swing state, but you know, Cantor really took a hit last uh, last winter in the debt um, ceiling negotiations. He and the actual Speaker of the House, John Boehner, really, I think, uh, had had a bit of a falling out uh, over the perception, anyway, that Cantor was trying to go around Boehner's back to try and rally some of the more conservative members uh, of the Republican caucus to his side. Um, and undermine the Speaker's position in negotiations with the White House, and that did him no favors. And now he's in an interesting position where, you know, when I wrote that profile of him, there were people talking about him as a potential vice presidential candidate, and in the end it's actually Paul Ryan who, along with uh, Cantor and uh, a third House member, Kevin McCarthy, were the, the Young Guns trio. So they, the three of them really have been leaders in the House in the last few years, but now it's Paul Ryan who's really outshining Eric Cantor um, uh, out of the three. And so the question will be uh, when when this election is over and when what could potentially, whatever the result in the presidential election, what could potentially be an even more conservative and Tea Party-inflected House uh, Republican caucus comes in and, and, you know, if it's a majority, whether Cantor actually could make a play at the Speaker's chair, which is clearly what he's been after um, in the last year. But, uh, but yes, he's been surprisingly quiet, and maybe that's, uh, you know, I would guess, knowing him, that that's a strategic decision on his part um, to but wait Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan would certainly be seen as an ally of cancer. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I think the two of them are uh, ideologically very close, intellectually very close, personally very close still. Um, but, you know, Cantor's an ambitious guy, and it can't be easy to see another good-looking, dark-haired guy be uh, be feted as the future of the party. Very interesting. Uh, 
just uh, while we're on the outside New York, Virginia, I think that uh, you have some Virginia connections. And, uh, uh, only that it's across the river, as I'm here in D.C., so I can, I can, I, I can I was almost say, see it from, could, from my backyard. Uh, you can see it from your house, as the as, uh, famous saying goes. Uh, w- let's take a step outside of New York and New Jersey for you know, some of our listeners. What do the Jews outside of New York and New Jersey uh, feel, and you know, how are they different in their voting patterns and their attitudes towards uh, you know, considered Jewish issues? It gets much harder to tell because they there are either fewer of them in one place or or they're scattered and and so they really drift back into the general population, which you know was one reason given to me why particularly the Republican Jewish coalition has decided to not spend a lot of money and time and energy in Virginia, which as you pointed out is a swing state. It could potentially be one of the three or four deciding states in the presidential election, uh, but at the moment they've got an extremely competitive Senate race between uh, a former Virginia governor, Tim Kaine, the Democrat, and another former Virginia governor and also former senator, the Republican George Allen. Who may or may not be Jewish. Technically, he is indeed Jewish, um, but he he is not, in fact, he was not raised as a Jew and he has not made any effort to either become a Jew or or adopt uh, any sort of observance, but he is technically Jewish. Um, and we have seen, but he's he, no longer he was, running away from it. He's no longer running away from it, um, but he's not enthusiastically running toward it. Even though he he did go to a, a Chabad Lubavitch conference uh, a couple of years ago and did very gamely uh, try and blow a shofar, um, which he now keeps in his office. But he's not running away from it because he really can't. I mean, his mother uh, came out and said openly after he he had spent a few weeks trying to deny it. His mother said, "No, no, no, it absolutely is true." So running away from it would be a little bit. Um, at least unseemly, um, if not impossible. But um, but he's certainly not stood up and said that you know he's changed his religious uh, beliefs or, or convictions. I, you know I don't know whether he has made any sincere exploration in terms of adopting any Jewish practice. It doesn't seem um, no, nobody I spoke to had heard anything to that effect. Um, now, but George he's typically Allen... a Jew, and he he you know he's always had really strong support from the Republican Jewish Coalition, and so he's somebody who. Um, I'm actually a little bit surprised that they're not investing more in supporting. Now, George Allen famously, uh, six years ago, uh, snatched uh, uh, defeat from victory? Correct. Yes, he did. Um, for somebody who's a very polished politician, when things are going his way, he, he turned out to be somebody who uh, can't hold it together when things turn against him. So he had his infamous episode where at a the rally... Maca- the Macaca moments. Yes, he... he looked out at the audience and saw somebody who I guess he recognized was, was an opposition researcher from the opposing campaign and, and was in, happened to be Indian-American and called him Makaka, um, which unfortunately is a North African slur. Um, the campaign first said that it was a made-up word and then tried to say that he had really misspoken and tried to say Mohawk, and you know, then it turned out that, no, he, of course, had heard Makaka, and, and you know, that was, in fact, indirectly what led to the forward initially reporting um, that his mother came from an extremely prominent uh, Tunisian and Tunis uh, Jewish family, the Lombroso family. So it was a, a, a domino of, of revelations about George Allen at the Look time. Look what happens and, in the South when they find Jews in your pedigree. You know, uh, he and or George Allen, in fact, tells a story uh, now occasionally um, uh, about one thing that happened, which is that his wife Susan, he wasn't even there, but his wife Susan uh, was at outside, I believe, a rally, and uh, was handing out stickers or buttons or bumper stickers, and uh, 
somebody she handed a, a campaign piece to said, oh, yeah, he's the Jew boy. Um, and when George Allen tells this story, he is not necessarily startled that anybody would say such a thing in in the you know in in contemporary America. It's more he seems startled that anybody would say it to him, and that he and his family would be eligible for that kind of epithet. But um, but that does happen in Virginia. Um, but again, you know, it's it's a really personal thing, and it's not totally clear that his running away from it in the campaign in 2006 and and being a little bit ambivalent about embracing at this time around is anything more than, you know, what somebody would do just who has a surprising and difficult thing in their family history. It's not clear that it actually is a calculated campaign decision, although it's, it would seem to many observers who I spoke to about it that he certainly gave up a potential advantage um, by not taking it on more forcefully, um, since there are a lot of equal, uh, an equal number of voters who think, you know, Jews are great and Israel's great and it's not clear, um, but that's that's where he is on it. So, right, we're here with Allison Hoffman for a couple more minutes, or I have one last uh, topic to cover. Absolutely, and that is J Street. I haven't uh, really seen, heard very much of J Street. Ha- are they disappearing in Washington? Are they being more aggressive quietly in this race? J Street, J Street is in a little bit of a bind because they really premise themselves on addressing the question of, of the, a peace settlement between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And as you pointed out, the whole machinery uh, of a peace settlement has actually just come to a halt. So, you know, J Street, I think, ran into a number of problems. You know, they were perceived or, or advertised themselves as being very close to the administration at one point, and that turned out to maybe be less true than, than they'd wanted people to, to believe. Um, and also potentially changed from the administration side once J Street, you know, it became clear that they had their own agenda and their own ambitions that didn't necessarily at all times line up uh, with whatever the White House was selling that week. And so that's that's something. But they really have been very quiet. They um, were active uh, in Ohio where the Democratic candidate for Senate, Sherrod Brown, he's running for re-election, um, has been a, a J Street supporter in the past. He's actually running against Josh Mandel, who's uh, one of the handful of Jewish Republican candidates, um, and it looks like he's got a, a solid lead. Uh, Brown has a solid lead for for re-election, but um, J Street has, is is the issue of 2008 that has just quietly become a non-issue in 2012. But uh, whether that reflects on their own missteps or on the fact that the issue that they were really focusing on has uh, really gone to the side of, of American politics. I mean, Iran has really taken the center stage. You know, I can't say which, uh, for sure, which it is, or if it's both maybe playing together. They, they seem to have so much momentum going. There was such a fight within the organized Jewish community over J Street. Are you pro-J Street? Can they be part? Are they are they pro-Israel? And that really seems to have disappeared. Uh, well, it, the organized could, Jewish could you... community was was thrilled to have something else to discuss for once, and <laughs> and uh, and they did discuss it. I mean, it did stir up a lot of uh, questions, and I think it actually forced a number of the older, um, more mainline, if you will, organizations to really rethink how they were approaching uh, younger Jews and really uh, communicating with younger Jews. And so that may also have had an effect where, you know, J Street almost was too successful in convincing these other organizations that they needed to, to rethink how they communicated and reached out and, and positioned themselves. My, my theory, and I'll just throw it out there for you because mm-hmm. uh, I ha- really have 
nothing really to base it on, is that the administration might have asked them to stand down during this race so as not to affect them with the uh, Jewish vote. You know, that's something that a number of people have floated to me, but I haven't seen any hard evidence one way or the other about it. I mean, the truth is that even in 2010, they were uh, sidelined. I mean, they've been sidelined with the administration for a while. Um, And they've been quiet um, for a while. I mean, Hard to be an advocacy organization when you're quiet. It's true, um, but they were so loud that it's entirely possible that they might, as, as you might be right, they might be biding their time in order to preserve um, their influence, or they might be re, uh, reconsidering how, how, how they approach the whole issue. I mean, Was they, it the George Soros funding, the initial denial, and then subsequently found that George Soros was actually funding them? Uh, did, was that, did that have a tremendous impact? Did they, did they sit back from that? It's really curious when, if you're an observer of Jewish politics, that they just seem to be inactive. I don't know that the, the Soros issue stuck um, in a deep way. I mean, it confirmed all of the doubts that people who already were uh, dead set against J Street had about them. But I think for supporters of J Street, they didn't mind so much one way or the other. I, I never heard anybody really um, express sort of an ongoing anxiety or anybody who had, had their mind changed about it. Um, because by the time that came out, they already had had, it was sort of the last of a series of missteps. Um, just strategically. Um, the last time we really heard a lot from them was when uh, the former New Republic editor, Peter Beinart, came out with a book um, earlier this year, and J Street was extremely involved in helping him promote that book. Um, it's a very, that's a very narrow uh, place to be as a publicity and promotion agent. Uh, Allison, I have to thank you uh, at this point for, for your time. We could go on and on probably all night. We, but, uh, <laughs> we certainly could, but we'll save it for I, next time. I have to I have to thank you for coming on. This has really been informative, and uh, this is Spin Class Politics with Michael Fragan. Allison Hoffman, senior writer at Tablet Magazine. If uh, you are not on that website every day, listeners, I encourage you to do so. There's always good stuff there, good fodder, and m- men- much of the time Allison is the one writing it. So thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Listeners, your comments are welcome. In fact, they are encouraged. Michael at NahumSiegel.com. And I want to thank you for listening. I want to make a very quick plug for a debate coming up at Lander College for Men in Kew Gardens Hills. Don't have the exact address, but look it up. Me versus David Lukens. I will be on the right. He will be on the left. And that will be Tuesday night, October 30th. Thank you very much for joining us. We will be back next Thursday night on the Nachum Siegel Network, jmandtheam.org, nachumsegel.com, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.